Got it. I think it, I think it is that time. Very good. Welcome, everybody, um, to the March 22nd, 2021 uh, Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Commission meeting. Um, we have tonight uh, a joint study session with the Multimodal Transportation Commission. And so welcome um, to all of you who are here. Um, before going any further, I wanted to turn it over to Becky Pepper, um, who is going to kind of go over some of the Zoom call ground rules. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Becky Pepper. I'm the planning manager. Joining me here in the city commission room is Jeff Crick, planning and development service services director, David Cronin, city engineer, and Kyle Kobe, who will be uh, helping facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. We will work along with the vice chair, who is on video remote, to facilitate the meeting proceedings. Currently, we have everyone muted so that we can talk through the general ground rules for tonight's meetings. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast live on the city's YouTube channel. During the meeting, please mute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon found on the lower left-hand corner of the Zoom menu next to the video icon. When you're muted, a red line will appear over the icon. This will make it easier for everyone to hear the meeting. Just remember to unmute if and when you want to speak. You can also turn your video camera on or off by clicking the video icon in your menu. For the purposes of this public meeting, please keep your video on for the duration. If you're participating by phone, you can enter star six to mute and unmute your phone. Somewhere on your Zoom screen, you will also see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker and gallery view tiles all of the meeting participants. Commissioners, you must state your name and title each time you speak. Members of city staff must also state their name and title each time they speak. I would also ask that members of the public identify themselves each time before they speak to ensure that everyone is able to follow along. When public comment is sought on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. For window and Mac users, this can, uh, they can access this feature through the participants button on the bottom of the screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located at the bottom right hand corner of their screen. And for those calling in by phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you're called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The vice chair will then call for in-person public comment for those who are physically pre present. Staff will direct you to the podium to speak while following social distancing and safety protocols. The regular three minute time limit will apply. I want to again remind everyone to please mute yourself when you're not speaking. Thank you. Uh, Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair of the Planning Commission. Thanks, Becky. Um, I think before, as we did um, at the previous uh, meeting, like this mid Monday meeting, a mid-month as we're sort of having them for the Planning Commission, we entertained any public comment at the outset so that we could um, take those comments into account while we're having our discussion. And so I'd like to open it up at this point to anyone who is either on the call or in person um, at the commission room um, to make comment. And I I noticed that I, we have a, a hand raised, a Zoom hand raised. Um, and so I'll go ahead and call on uh, Mr. Allman, we see you there if you'd like to unmute and uh, please observe the three minute um, limit and offer whatever comments you have. 
Hi, good evening. Thank you. This is Michael Allman uh, speaking for myself tonight. Um, looking over the work session agenda, I, um, I find that the, uh, the topics that the MPO staff has brought to you for discussion between the two commissions is, you know, pretty, pretty uh, good stuff. Um, it, uh, you know, it covers a number of different topics and that's all good and well, but I'm very concerned that however they drew the scope of their presentation, you know, what they're gonna cover and what they're not going to cover, doesn't address the original purpose of uh, the two commissions convening. And by that, I just wanna point out that there were at least two occasions at the planning commission that I brought up the issue where a, uh, a, a plat or a development plan or whatever had a number of items covered for land use, but very little covered for multimodal transportation. The first one was the North Massachusetts Street Study where architect Paul Werner brought forth a um, draft design for that whole complex. Nowhere did he show any bicycle facilities, for example. All he said was that they're adjacent to the levee trail. He did show a bicycle in some of his pretty pictures. That bicycle was on the sidewalk. So I pointed out to the commission that, you know, the land use concerns should be uh, added added to by the multimodal transportation commission so they could reflect and comment on the transportation elements the second time was that a uh, replat in my neighborhood on harper street where there were a lot of uh, difficult traffic maneuverings that weren't considered in the plat but it was on a dogleg curve with very poor line of vision and that wasn't something that came into consideration for a plat so what i pointed out in both cases was it would be good if these kind of multimodal transportation concerns were available to the multimodal transportation commission to comment on any of these these uh proposals these projects what you're covering tonight doesn't address that. It doesn't address um, an overlap of the two commissions in looking at projects, one looking at the land use part, one looking at the multimodal transportation part. And at least one com commissioner on the Transportation Commission, uh, Commissioner Bowen, has specifically said she wants to look at land use elements. And commissioners in the Planning Commission have also said they want to consider more of the multimodal transportation. It's not on your agenda tonight. It's very odd that this has been discussed and interest shown by both commissions, and yet the MPO does not include that in their scope. So I think maybe it'd be a good idea to have another one of these joint sessions so you could actually discuss those issues. I would appreciate it myself, I tell you. So thank you for the time. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair Planning Commission. Thank you, Mr. Allman. Um, appreciate those comments. And uh, I think we probably will take them into account, if not tonight, 
at a future date, but um, we'll we'll take them into account as we're as we sort of go forward here. Um, do we have any other members of the public either on the Zoom call um, that are raising their hands? Uh, Becky, are you able to tell? Kyle, COVID planning, I don't see any other digital hands being raised. I don't see anybody uh, waving their hand around in their video screens and there's nobody in the room to speak at this time. Okay, great. Luke Sinclair, uh, Vice Chair Planning Commission. Thank you for that, Kyle. Uh, so I guess then what we can do is um, move forward into what we have for tonight for um, our joint study session. Um, we all met and we all met uh, several months ago um, and I think had a pretty good discussion um, in the time that we had. I know there's been a little um, turnover, uh, new members on the Multimodal Transportation Commission and I think a new um, chair since last time. Um, but I guess I'd like to, um, if possible, first identify that we're, the things that we have to discuss, at least according to the agenda, are um, the land use and transportation best practices um, study. And then the second thing would be sidewalk variances. And I think we have with us tonight, we're privileged to have uh, Jessica here to talk a little bit and give some background on that. But before um, asking her, I guess I'd, I'd sort of put it to um, the chair of the Multimodal Transportation Commission to offer any comments that you'd like um, before we launch in. And is it right, Pat, that you are the chair currently? Uh, that's correct, Luke. This is this is Pat Collette, uh, chair of MMTC. Um, okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to double check whether we needed to call roll for this uh, for this study session, or is that not needed for for that? This is Becky Pepper, planning manager. Uh, we do not need to call roll for this meeting tonight. Uh, quorum is not needed, but we do have a quorum for planning commission, and also for multimodal transportation commission. Okay. Thank you. Um, this is. Pat Collette again, MMTC chair. Um, as you said, Luke, I'm, I'm the new chair. I've just been on the commission really for three three months and became chair at the, <laughs> the same time. So I'm doing a lot of uh, catch up. I did watch the uh, study session from uh, September to get a sense of kind of the flow of the discussion and, and kind of where we are at this point. And I asked uh, uh, Commissioner Kuzniak to uh, just provide kind of a little summary of kind of how things ended at the at the last meeting in terms of the land use and transportation um, discussion, um, you know, with both with his dad and and uh, uh, with um, you know with the members of the of the commission, so that we can kind of uh, launch into this into this first agenda item. Hey, Kuzmiak, MMTC. I can try. Um... Currently looking through my notes to make sure I get the right, the right stuff here. So, um, I believe what we had intended to do last time was basically just set the stage. Um, as far as I'm aware, there had not been a previous joint session between the Planning Commission and Multimodal Transportation Commission. So we had set out to try to bridge that gap by at least having an introductory meeting, which we did. I thought it was quite successful. Um, we went through, um, geez, probably 45 minutes worth of introductions and everybody's interest in both planning and transportation and kind of where that intersects. 
And um, from there, we dropped into a sorry um, into a presentation by um, my dad, actually, who is a transportation planner for a living. So, um, quick background: that's kind of probably why I'm interested in transportation and planning, as it turns out. Who would have thought, right? So he. he he gave a sort of introductory presentation on the intersection of transportation and planning. And I believe there's a couple of case studies with regard to um, Maryland and the area around DC. And uh, I believe we had a pretty strong discussion after that, basically deciding that, yeah, I think we need to look more into the relationship between these two commissions and try to get a stronger relationship going forward. So it looks like that has been taken to heart. Um, Jeff and Dave have worked together to get this uh, second meeting going on, as I'm sure the chairs and vice chairs have as well. We had originally planned a couple of other things, um, one of them being the design standards, which is a very broad term for a couple of items, um, being uh, subdivision standards and street design standards, possibly even stormwater design standards, to see if there was a way that we can incorporate principles from planning into transportation and possibly vice versa. This is based off of previous discussion that we had had at the Multimodal Commission where we realized that there were a couple of municipalities around the country that approached their street design in more of a form-based way, um, similar to how some zoning codes are. So we thought perhaps there's something there and um, maybe we can try to look closer into that. I don't believe that we got too far into it because most of the meeting was taken up by the introduction and the overall d discussion, but um, I think what we're going to be talking about with the MPO steering group is going to address that issue. So um, I'm, I'm confident that those design standards will eventually be discussed in a more holistic manner. The final agenda item was going to be around parking, just all of parking, because while private property parking standards do fall under the Planning Commission's jurisdiction, um, street parking is a little bit more nebulous in terms of what citizen border falls under, but they're two sides of the same coin. And we've realized a couple times in Multimodal Transportation Commission that um, that it would be good to try to figure out who kind of has a grip on this and maybe devise a better way of looking at parking holistically because it does all connect. So anyway, we didn't have a chance to get to that and we may not in this meeting as well, but I think going forward, um, it may be a topic that we want to revisit. And it may even be revisited during the, um, what is this called? The MPO steering committee. So that's about all I have. Did anybody have any other things that I missed? This is this is uh, Commissioner Collette, uh, MMTC chair. Um, uh, thanks, Nick. That I think that's a, good summary of where things left were left and and i think you know some of that discussion at the end of that meeting in terms of kind of the marrying of of um of, of plan uh, 2040 and and transportation 2040 you know really looking at the land use and transportation and having a way that the two groups can um can in, in step with with decisions that are that are made by by each group and and uh, you know I think kind of related to Mr. Almond's uh, comment in terms of, of looking at at those those both sides of the land use and the in the transportation decisions uh, to figure out a, a process to uh, to really get there so um, I'd like to 
turn it back over to uh, Vice Chair Sinclair. Thank you, Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair Planning Commission. Um, I guess, Jessica, would you be able to just sort of uh, talk about, uh, I mean, you, you uh, um, provided a, a memo and I was hoping you could just sort of speak to that and how that, what you put there interplays with um, some of the things that uh, Pat and Nick said and just sort of our discussion for this evening. Absolutely. Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager for the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization. And I wanted to provide you a memo tonight to kind of follow up to the discussion you previously had that um, let you know that staff has kind of recognized there's a need to do some higher level work around um, some of this these issues that's probably going to extend beyond um, just some joint meetings between these two bodies. And so we wrote into our work plan for the year for the MPO um, kind of a study that would likely work with the MPO policy board to establish a steering committee made up of um, some interested stakeholders and parties to help kind of guide the work where we envisioned kind of researching around some different areas related to whether that be major thoroughfares map revisions um, particularly we know MMTC has discussed before the considering the addition or the stratification of street classifications and how what impact that has then to code um, the establishment of transportation corridor overlays that are a current placeholder in the land development code, um, access management planning or corridor specific access management needs. Um, we've heard some of those issues arise around 6th Street um, previously. And then, of course, um, on 23rd Street, which used to service K-10 and no longer doesn't, has an older uh, access management um, plan there. Um, a little bit to talk about what Nick had mentioned about the right-of-way parking policies and parking best practices as a whole, um, recognizing there were still some outstanding issues after the Article 9 um, revision that maybe there was some community interest in talking about. Um, connectivity policies for bicycle and pedestrian networks, and I think that gets to some of the how um, public improvement plans are put together and what private requirements are for development in terms of looking at what we're talking about in terms of making connected networks um, and then streetscape design. And so those are all issues that we've heard discussed before. Um, we've heard from our colleagues, whether that's at planning commission on specific site issues um, and or issues that I think are still kind of out there and exist in that realm of uh, MMTC and, and national best practices where we feel like there is some work that can be done where we can come together. Let's explore all of these best practices and kind of put together some recommendations about where we could go to implement Transportation 2040 that is part of Plan 2040 that calls for some of these things, um, improve mobility, and find some recommendations. I think the reality of that is recognizing this is a lot of work. Um, getting into some of these code changes and or updated plans um, or processes is going to require time. And so rather than just saying one-off what somebody is interested in, we kind of felt like there would be an appropriate to have a steering committee that could help guide that work and weigh a prioritization um, with staff to help understand then you know, what does that really entail? How does that all fit together in workload? Um, because, you know, there's some transportation planning work needed, but that also might involve land use planners. That also might involve engineers. And putting that together is a more comprehensive work plan um, that this list isn't meant to be exhaustive. I think today's conversation, I'm hoping to just listen and learn from you if there's something else you would like us to consider as part of that. Um, so we can do that work with hopefully 
um, some future conversations where we could bring back some more concrete ideas um, and research for you to explore in terms of implementing changes for the ties to mobility and land use and transportation. Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commission. Thanks, Jessica. Um, thanks for being here too. I, it'd be nice to maybe let some of the members of the commissions pose questions to you if, if they can. But before that, I want to check with um, either anybody from uh, PDS or with Dave, David Cronin, if, if you guys had anything you wanted to add um, that would be pertinent to us as we talk about this tonight. I don't have anything. Uh, Dave Cronin, the engineer. I don't have anything specific. Um, you know, we've, the MMTC has, um, you know, ha had some questions before about, um, you know, as, as Nick mentioned, um, form, form based design, corridor type planning. And so, yeah, we're here to listen to. Um, we've got, our, you know, our, our design criteria is, is pretty general. Um, we, we do, uh, when we design streets, Look at all kinds of different um, design guides, um, national design guides uh, when we uh, design streets um, from uh, AASHTO, uh, which is more technical, to NACTO, which is more uh, conceptual uh, streetscape type work. So, um, um, yeah, that's uh, we're uh, just want to. Uh, have a discussion tonight that kind of will lead into that uh, land use transportation study that we're going to do later this year. So, if I may, Mr. Vice Chair, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director. I, I really don't have much to add. I think Jessica did a great job covering those details and going to what we're kind of looking for there. I think it's also important to remember is that is that comment about T2040 is part of Plan 2040, so it is the transportation chapter of the document. So. A lot of those good efforts that we've seen at the MPO and has been going on with MSO is all kind of in that same document. So it's, it's a, it's, it, while it is its own plan, it is actually in there and integrated as part of our comprehensive plan. So it does have a lot of weight and value. Thank you both. Luke Sinclair, uh, Vice Chair Planning Commission. Um, I guess I'd just open it up to uh, members of either commission after, after hearing that and hearing um, from Pat and Nick, uh, does anyone have any comments or questions that they'd like to pose to the good of the whole order? Uh, Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, and I guess if it's okay, I, well, quick point of order. If it's okay, I just assume let people, members of the commissions, unmute and talk as long as no one's talking over each other as opposed to me having to call on people. Is that is that okay? Uh, I guess that's a question for you, Jeff. This is Becky Pepper, planning manager. That would be fine. Okay. Sorry, Becky. And thank you. So uh, I see Commissioner Sands' hand. I'll, I'll just point you out since I saw your hand up. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Rob Sands, planning uh, yeah, I wanted to, uh, one of the things that we talked about that was of most interest to me the last time we did this study session was uh, the short discussion we had about parking. And I think, uh, you know, I, I made the comment 
I'm maybe I don't want to abolish parking minimums, but I could actually hear the arguments for abolishing parking minimums. Um, I think one parking is a land use issue that intersects with um, intermobility. We pave great swaths of acreage in this city and in, in, in other cities. I mean, we're not alone in this. Um, and, and it is a land, it literally uses land that is, is taxed and serviced and, um, it needs to be maintained and et cetera, et cetera. So I think, uh, you know, if we have to, if we have to attack one thing more than anything else, my vote would be, uh, looking at parking as a land use and seeing if we can adjust these things, seeing if we can either reduce the standards. And I know we went through a parking study a while back and there was some adjustment made and that's great. And I don't know how much development has happened since that um, parking adjustment was made. And and maybe that's a good discussion to have. Um, You know, most of what has been developed uh, for infill develop with development within the city um, you know, makes up a small percentage of what's already been done. So the question is, is we can, in my mind, we can, we can talk about parking minimums and parking as a land use till the cows come home. Do we have, do we have the ability and the agility to change any of that? Maybe we do. And, and here's me being slightly pessimistic and maybe we don't, you know, the, the large, the big box stores with, hundreds of square, uh, you know, hundreds of parking spaces adding up to acres and acres for us you know, to that service, a single store, they're already there. Um, I don't know that. And, and we'll only be able to apply new standards when that tenant moves out, new tenant moves in and they request a special use permit or a conditional use permit. So um, that, you know, I think that's, that's uh, maybe pulling the stick back a little bit, gaining a little altitude. Maybe that's, that's an issue um, of, of how do we is, or is there a way, or is it worthy of discussion of how do we apply these standards that I think are widely accepted? Well, how do we have these discussions about applying these standards that are, that may be more widely acceptable, not accepted, but acceptable uh, to the citizens of Lawrence and Douglas County about parking minimums, about, about sidewalk width, about, um, how much, here's one, um, green space, uh, versus, uh, non-permeable green space, non-permeable surface, and how much we actually pave when we are talking about, uh, for example, the Queens road project of, uh, eight, foot multi-use path, bike lane, car lane, turn lane, car lane, bike lane, multi-use path. I mean, maybe maybe I don't know enough about um, the goals of the Multimodal Transport Transport Commission and, and kind of what their guiding light is or, or what the guiding light is uh, for the transportation standards or transportation planning standards for those things. But that seems to collide in my mind with with environmental issue I and mean, we're paving a ton of area and giving people multiple options, but we're really what we're doing at the end of the day is we're giving them the option to either walk or ride on the multi-use path on either side that is made out of concrete or walk or ride on the 
bike lane that is made out of asphalt. And I, and I will tell you in, in West Lawrence, where I live, I would just love it if people would stick to a sidewalk. I mean, I see people running in the street all the time. It's like, we've got sidewalks on both sides of the street. We, you know, we, we paid, we paid these things and, and that's a loss of, 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 of land that could soak in more stormwater. So I, I don't know. That was rambling. I apologize. I like to talk about parking. Um, I, and I would also like you know, maybe to explore that. Is there a way to, to, to go on a road diet and, and would a road diet even matter? We've got so much developed land already. I, is there a way to pull some of that back? That's all. You asked yeah, for input, you got it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that somebody provided a, uh, a bit of direction. I was a little bit nervous. This was going to be kind of aimless, but thank you, Rob, for, for kicking it off. And, um, and get yeah, some the fact two. that you thought that that wasn't aimless is such a compliment. I, I mean, felt so towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> so I think when it comes to parking, I think it it is good to to uh, approach the requirement for minimum mastery parking with trepidation, simply because it is such a hot button issue with the general public at large. Um, I mean, in fact, the matter is we have set up our our cities over the past sixty or seventy years to absolutely depend on our cars to get anywhere. Um, some people might say it's a choice to drive, but I mean, it's a choice if you want to participate in, in uh, uh, society, really. If you don't have a car, it's tough. So most of what anybody's ever known is traveling in a personal car, unless you live in New York or DC or San Francisco. So um, it's no wonder that people are very hesitant to say, maybe let's lower parking minimums or maybe let's charge more for parking. That sounds insane when your lived experience has only ever told you that Driving is acceptable. Driving is desired. People depend on driving. I have no other way to get around, right? That's kind of the mindset that I'm assuming a lot of people approach the issue with, which, which means it's going to be hard to start a conversation when emotions and lived experience trump what the larger conversation is. And, and that is maybe we set up our cities, you know, in a not as equitable fashion as we maybe should have, given that cars cost money. Um, there, There's no one silver bullet to kind of switch that but there are a couple of things that are within both of our commission's power to start at least chipping away at the dominance of cars and therefore the requirement that if you want to be a productive member of society you got to have one right so i think when you start with parking um especially off street parking requirements rob it sounded like you were a little bit worried that that maybe decreasing or even eliminating standards could be relatively useless for the big box stores and big parking lots that they already have but to that i would maybe counter just with a very oddly specific example, Dylan's on 6th Street, the east one, not the west one, has a massive parking lot. And it's pretty rare. I don't think it's ever been full, honestly. <laughs> There's that, that whole western half that's just north of their gas station is largely empty most of the time. I'm, I have a feeling it's for people who are, are visiting their friends in those apartments. If you were to reduce the amount of parking required for that Dylan's, I have a feeling you'd find somebody who would find a more productive use for that corner of the parking lot. Um, especially if that use also didn't have to have, you know, an acre of parking to serve whatever it may end up being. Perhaps it could be a restaurant or a bar or a cafe or, or housing. Who knows? Um, but empty asphalt is probably not the best use of that land right now. So I think if those standards were relaxed, existing uses could find more productive uses for their existing patches of concrete. Um, as to the road diet, I think that is something that there's been a bit of a shift in thinking on our 
commission in that um, maybe the street design standards don't necessarily meet the needs that we have in all parts of town. Um, East 19th Street comes to mind as kind of the, the most prescient example at this point where I think according to street design standards on a collector street, it had to be 31 feet curb to curb, um, which for a couple of the design alternatives meant really just one lane in either direction and each of those lanes being like 16 feet wide, which is really, really wide. That's wider than, you know, being on an interstate. Um, not only do um, streets contribute to impervious area and increase maintenance costs, but they also contribute to excessive speeding because it's really easy to drive fast on a wide road. That's why racetracks are really wide. So, you know, two very different issues, but both of them are, are going to have to come into play for both of our commissions. Um, street design, often, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, staff or commissioners, it, it can come into play in subdivision standards. So when you're first plotting out a new subdivision, you're you're going to be laying down streets, and I, I believe those actually do come under your purview planning commission. So there may actually be some places where you guys work on what would be thought as transportation stuff. Um, so anyway, again, kind of rambling, but I think those are two big points that we have a lot of intersection on here: parking and the width of streets. Uh, I'd say it's planning commission. Uh, yeah, just let me add one. I'm sorry, Aaron. Uh, and then if we're going to list things at uh, sidewalk variances and, and relief for sidewalk variances, because I know one of those came up recently too. Over. Luke Sinclair, vice chair. Uh, I'll step into referee when there's so many hands up. Um, but I think uh, Commissioner Payton and then Commissioner Ashworth both had your hands up. I don't know who went first, but uh, Commissioner Payton, I think you jumped in. So can you just go ahead and then Commissioner Ashworth can jump in after you're done. Aaron Payton, Planning Commission and MMTC. Um, so this might be kind of rambling also, but one thing that I feel like in the last, whatever it's been, seven years, um, that I really still feel like I'm having trouble getting my head wrapped around on, on our ability to change, um, I think comes, comes from both, both directions. But I mean, when I look at uh, plan 2040 and I look at the direction land use wise that our city continues, I feel like to develop in, um, for example, the new hospital um, and the new police facility, to me, it seems all more and more car-based rather than less and less. And so, I, I often question, are we actually headed in the direction that I feel like our plans say that we want to go? Do we have any power to actually change that? I mean, I've heard stories lately about, well, never mind, forget it. I don't need the anecdotes. Um, but I think about that and I think about, okay, my question would be, we were talking about street, street design or streetscape design. And I think some of this falls into it, like, when you already have a, a street like 6th Street, you know, I, I know that um, Nick kind of said something about this, but when, you are, when you've been planning for the car for 60 or 70 years, I think the difficulty I have is like, I still can't wrap my head around how to back that up, how to change that. And then when we, we do th change things or we do redesign a street or we do resurface um, a street or um, repair a street, 
it so often feels that we're not really making headway. And so I, I still, I mean, I think all these, all these things that Jessica has on here for, um, to look at are, are great and things that I, I would love the answer to, but, um, chipping away at it. And sometimes it feels like we're not, we're, we're going in circles, I guess, um, going around abouts. Um, so I guess I kind of want to know how do we get at that from both directions? How do we, um, change the way we're building roads when you have a street like sixth street already? Uh, I feel like I'm not making myself clear, but it just, I feel like street design, um, streetscape design could make a lot of difference. And one thing that I'm, I'm specifically curious about learning more about best practices is uh, when you have something that's redeveloped or developed and you want to redevelop it, what has been done to make something less um, sprawl-like. Uh, but if you're still sprawling or if you're still building in that way, how can you change land use patterns um, with a little more teeth? Um, Sharon Ashworth, Planning Commissioner. Uh, I was uh, taking off from Commissioner Sands' uh, starting example of parking minimums. Um, it just, to me, that's a great example um, of how these things can intersect with so many other issues. Um, and looking at it from, excuse my cat, um, a, a little bit above the just the issue of parking minimums, because when you're looking at parking minimums and could we reduce that, you're also looking at where's that traffic that car, those cars are gonna go, um, because there's always a time lag. Um, you concentrate on cars for all these years, it's gonna take a long time to get people used to other modes of transportation. So then you have to look at the neighboring areas, the neighborhoods close to downtown, close to the university, that maybe we need to look at permit parking so that that overflow doesn't go over to there, doesn't go over to the neighborhoods and fill those parking places up. Um, you're also looking at bus routes when you're considering minimum parking. Um, why do we not have a circulator bus going downtown? Maybe that's a potential option to keep people um, from their cars. We just, you go to Denver and many other cities and they have a dedicated bus that goes, runs up and down the equivalent of Mass Street or a circulator bus. Um, you look at the sidewalks. I mean, people being able to walk downtown, um, wheelchair downtown, bicycle downtown when the sidewalks are just, you can barely use them um, in some areas. So it's, it's a great example that Commissioner Sands brought is that parking minimum basically has all these domino effects that also need to be addressed at the same time to come up with a comprehensive, if it's possible, instead of doing it piece by piece, to look at all the potential impacts radiating out from that one decision. Um, and how do we bring all that together? How do we look at all of those? Um, and there was something that uh, Commissioner Payton mentioned about the... Um, and I lost it. I'll have to come back to it. Um, but the, one of the things on the outline here that was given to, to us um, is a connectivity for bicycle and pedestrian networks is a, a, is a key part of that in terms of looking at the overall ability for us to switch more 
to other modes of transportation besides depending on the cars. Luke Sinclair, uh, Vice Chair, I see uh, Commissioner Freeman raising her hand. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, Lauren Freeman with MMTC. I just wanted to add a quick kind of note about parking minimums is that some communities also do parking maximums, which I think is also interesting to add because a lot of times developments, at least in my experience, um, will want to go above and beyond minimums because they want as many parking spaces as possible. So no one's ever inconvenienced ever. Um, so I think parking maximums could also be an important part of this conversation. Just wanted to add that. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commission. Uh, Commissioner Bryan, feel free to uh, say your piece. Uh, thank you. So when we had the discussion about, this is Commissioner O'Brien, um, MMTC. When we had the discussion about uh, parking, we did specifically talk about minimums and maximums. And I just wanted to kind of add another layer to this. Parking has to be looked at from both the off-street requirements and the on-street capacity. And so why we kind of see this as a good intersection between planning and um, MMTC is that you really can't, if you do one without consideration of the other, um, it could have a real, it could have, you know, potentially a negative impact. And thinking about neighborhoods that are already having to deal with um, a lack of adequate parking in an area, uh, one of the solutions that we uh, researched uh, months ago was a neighborhood benefit district where essentially parking is um, to the permit to park generates revenue for the neighborhood that they are then able to reinvest in uh, neighborhood improvements. And I think that was, uh, I can't remember the cities we looked at that had that, but there were a few cities that used those neighborhood benefit districts that I thought um, that was really intriguing. And it kind of makes the case to a neighborhood that there's a way to make uh, to generate revenue for their their improvement. So that could change some of the uh, posture that's already existing in neighborhoods that feel like they are imposed on when people park in their neighborhoods. And I think there was a process where the neighborhood residents were exempt from those uh, fees. So it really truly is a burden put on the uh, visitors to the neighborhood that are using the on-street parking there. Um, so I think that's something we need to probably learn more about. Another um, kind of related to this, and I, th I think this is more about placing it in, the, in another context, is we've already had some discussion about how much land is dedicated to parking vehicles and what we haven't really connected it to, though, is efforts to redevelop um, and increase the density of our community. And I think when we talk about redevelopment, we don't hear any discussion of, or I haven't heard discussion of, use of existing parking lots. And I think that should be deliberately discussed. 
Um, we know I mean, just in this conversation that there are pretty large surface parking lots that aren't being utilized um, for parking. And if they are ever to be utilized for parking, it's probably rare and more of an exception that can be, you know, managed. So I wonder when we're talking about how much land is available, uh, if we could start to quantify um, parking that might serve that purpose as well. And then to get to Commissioner Payton's uh, point, when we look at new development, uh, I think looking at um, Jessica's list, I, 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 you know, praise Jessica for all the great work she does, but I feel like <clears throat> these topics, um, they are a little more transportation centric. And I wonder if we ought to kind of also look at it from more of a land use planning perspective where it might be, you know, some focus on redevelopment, some focus on new development so that we are sure to capture kind of both perspectives. And then the last thing I'll say uh, about the sidewalk variances, um, I think it would be really helpful for any variance to the sidewalk ordinance to at least be reviewed by the Multimodal Transportation Commission um, for some recommendation on the matter before the Planning Commission commission or the city commission makes any decision about it. Um, I think that that would just better inform any decision that's being made by either of those bodies. That's all I have. Thank you. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair Planning Commission. Um, Commissioner Bowen, is, is that right? I see your hand up. I think you're muted, ma'am. People are not gonna give up driving unless they have some reasonable alternatives. And we can't do it all from the transportation perspective as Commissioner Bryan was suggesting, we need to look at the land use. Um, we have to give people reason not to want to drive. So is it possible that the city could be giving more guidance in development and redevelopment so that things are more nodal? For example, um, when we get a proposal for a low-income development, do we review it for accessibility to shopping, for schools, for jobs, or do we just do it for affordable land? If, if we have a more overarching picture of what we want in the city, can, can, we, can we push that kind of guidance? Commissioner Kuzmiak here uh, from MMTC. I, I believe when I when I looked into the development of the smart code back in 2010, that there was a couple of study sections that were shown to have high, um, higher intensity transects at them. And I'm not sure if that was the idea to make them into nodes necessarily, but um, it does seem that a more form-based code would be more appropriate to try to establish nodes. Like say 2030 in Louisiana, for example, which I believe was the main study area, um, could be a, I'm forgetting what it'd be called, maybe T4, T5, whereas maybe, once you get four or five blocks away from it, maybe that's now T3 or T2 instead, more residential. Um, it, 
it, it does seem to me that a form-based code is going to be more appropriate for that than a, um, I guess, use-based code. Because you know, if you're trying to make an actual hub that somebody could meet all their daily needs in, well, you're going to need to have housing next to commercial, which is difficult. Um, you would, it would be ideal to have that maybe uh, vertically mixed use or dense enough that you could have multiple uses even, you know, still separated horizontally, but say um, five row houses here, a couple of commercial establishment, a couple more row houses, so that it would be a dense enough of a node to A, provide for the people who live there and work there, but B, also be enough of a draw from other nodes elsewhere. Um, like say, uh, I'm trying to think of a good node, Ninth and Iowa, for example. Um, so yeah, I, I maintain that it's really unfortunate that we have this great form-based code that has been used a total of one time over 11 years. But I mean, we do have the tools right now to technically do that, but it would take some advocacy on, on our parts, on city staff's parts, and an education to the public as to what it is. Um, and that it, it might actually be able to accomplish the, the um, stated goals of Plan 2040 a lot better than our current zoning code can. So. I have heard from others that, you know, well, that was back in 2010. It's not even really relevant anymore. Yeah, but ours only codes from 2006. So is that really relevant anymore? It's, I mean, it's kind of debatable, honestly. So I really highly urge the Planning Commission to try to resurrect this thing and see what you can do with it. And instead of making it necessary for uh, a development of what, like an acre or two? I forget what the tr trigger is, but it's, it's, it's not easy. Like from what I read in the code, you can't just say our neighborhood is now T4. You have to actually have some redevelopment of some acreage that actually triggers that. So, yeah, no wonder nobody's ever going to use it for infill development. That's impossible. So, um, we, you know, basically we have a potentially amazing but functionally useless code that is on the books um, that could help us meet a couple of our needs in both Plant and T2040. Mr. Vice Chair, if I may, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director. To Commissioner Bowen and, and Commissioner Kuzmiak's point, the smart code does have specific areas that are sectioned and designated as part of the area. So you can go directly to a T-zoning, as it's known in that code, and go right into those items there. But also, many of our sector plans also have that nodal development in there, and they've had it in there for, in some plans cases, almost coming up on a decade now. So it's one of the key driving factors we see in Plan 2040 is that nodal development. So it has a lot of that kind of that same issues in there. So just wanted to kind of bring that up and let you know it is in both the sector plans we have, uh, definitely in, in Chapter 21 for the smart code. And I think that's probably something we're going to have to look at with the land development code to make sure if, you know, if that is the guidance and the direction is going to, I think it might take a little bit more work to kind of bring it up into alignment there. But... It is, the, it is that plan backing for those kind of nodal developments currently on the books. And it was actually in Horizon 2020 before Plan 2040's development. So it's been uh, a big part of our community for quite a while. Excuse me, I came in, TC. Just a quick reply to that. So I was curious about the sector plans and I looked them up and they don't cover a lot of the actual nodes that currently exist. There isn't anything on Iowa till you get to 31st. There's only a couple sectors that cover anything on 23rd Street, not including Louisiana Street or Iowa. So I like the idea of it, but it doesn't sound like it's currently poised to allow, uh, I guess, for designation of these nodes as as they already exist. Um, but I understand that as the plan 2040 process unfolds, you know, we start with the comprehensive plan, then we move to area plans and sector plans, 
neighborhood plans. So I assume that's probably in the works then to kind of cover the rest of the town. Because at this point, not much of the town is covered, it looks like. So I don't know. But it's good to know that the tools do exist. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair. Commissioner Carpenter. Jim Carpenter, Planning Commissioner. I just want to say this about the smart code. Be careful what you wish for, because that smart code we have now has to be totally revamped. It is not complied with Plan 2040. The nodes that are in there now were just used as examples. It was pushed through. People didn't understand what it was when it came through back in 2010. And it has a potential to remove almost all public comment or input in a plan. And if that's, you know, where we want to go and say, hey, this is what we think the whole city should look like. And you never need to go to the planning commission except to say, yes, this is an application under the smart code. Go appoint your committee and make your administrative decisions with no public comment throughout the process. That's what we have now. So if we want to use a form-based zoning, I think that's another discussion. And I think the smart code we have now has to be really revamped to reflect the community values that we have here in Lawrence. Making me call on you. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair Planning Commissioner. Commissioner Sands, go ahead. Just trying to respect the traffic cop role today. <laughs> um, Rob Sands, Planning Commissioner. Uh, so when we talk about uh, parking for infill development as a land use, uh, a couple examples come to my mind. Uh, the project that was uh, proposed at 23rd in Tennessee, which I I believe we approve. I cannot re recall the specific vote. I I believe we approved that one, um, and that was on the lower end of the parking requirement. Um, then the uh, 23rd and Oriad project, and I recall. I know I recall myself actually saying you could trim some parking from this. Was, was that the only, is that the only smart code that we've had? If Commissioner Carpenter can nod off of memory or shake his head off of memory, I can see him on my screen. Was that the only one we've had on, on the smart code? Is that the one? Actually, uh, uh, David Carter, uh, uh, planning commissioner, I'm just uh, trying to place your second example. Did you say 23rd and Orient? Uh, yeah, and I can't recall the, the name of that, uh, what we, what the shorthand name for that development. Proxy. Proxy. It's at 23rd and Naismith. And Naismith. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, 23rd and Naismith. That was the smart code application, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and we, we actually, you know, to maybe give the MMTC a little bit of solace is we, we did ask them. You know, maybe maybe relook your plan. Maybe trim a couple parking spots. Maybe get some more units out, more living units out of it. Um, and then, uh, so so there's two examples on on parking in infill that we've tangled with. Um, and and I want to go back to Commissioner Brian's comments 
um, about the intersection between um, off street and on street parking and the example that comes. So I, I, where I'm getting at with all of this is I think we've got a lot of really great vignettes. Uh, for example, the neighborhoods surrounding uh, LMH, the main campus, that is, that is one of the areas where they specifically mention the off street offflow. We've got old West Lawrence, Oriad neighborhood um, for that intersection between off street and on street and, and how those those things impact. So I think we've we've got the vignettes available to develop a policy for that intersection between on street and off street. We've got I'm gonna say something terrible and popular. We've we've obviously got a vignette of what happens when we reduce off street parking on Mass Street and how successful or maybe unsuccessful that can be. Uh, we've got examples of of asking infill developers to reduce parking standards and and we can evaluate whether or not that was successful. Um, the North Mass Street project, even though that hasn't even started yet, uh, that I think, and I can't recall if that made parking minimums or not. Uh, I recall um, Mr. Warner saying that he was going to put enough parking in there to support the project, but I don't recall what that was. So Maybe that maybe we're a bit too mature, uh, too premature to use that as a good example. But I think we've got plenty of vignettes from across the city and, and the experience of of all the commissioners in both of these bodies to go. We we've got enough to start making some policies. So um, yeah, so let's do that. Let's start addressing one issue at a time, whether it be the intersection of on street and off street. Uh, development of existing parking lots. We've got some examples uh, that come to mind there or infill or, or whatever, pick one, work with staff, develop a policy that meets that objective, then move on to the next. And, and it'll seem like we're not making much progress, but if we take one issue and just move it incrementally down the line, then, then I think we can actually arrive at a series of policies that Number one, give developers some guidance um, that that also meet uh, some transportation objectives and that really dedicate land use to the things that we need to use land for efficiency, efficiently and effectively, whether it be residential housing or, or, or commercial development, actually getting to the, the nuts and bolts instead of just paving everything in our city. Sorry, more rambling. Commissioner Bryan, MMTC. I'd like to um, kind of take us back to something that Commissioner Bowen mentioned. And I I feel specifically like there was an issue or a project that was proposed a couple years ago from the MPO. And I don't know the status of it. I, I believe it was not funded. It was the creation of a multimodal transportation impact study methodology and i think this would get to what what commissioner bowen is asking for when there's a new development being proposed and there's a need to understand how that development what impact it'll have on transportation uh systems i i'd like to learn more about like how exactly could we do that as a community and i'm looking at the 
I think the MPO documents from back in May of 2018, and it suggested cost about $40,000. I don't know, um, Jessica, you could speak on. Yeah, so Jessica Morton's your transportation planning manager. And Charlie, that was one of the proposed projects we were looking at for some competitive grant funding that we were seeking from the state. And it was not the chosen project that we ended up applying for. But I would actually point to Dave Cronin because I think um, MSO has some plans to update and work on traffic impact study requirements to add some multimodal elements that might get at what you were addressing. And I think that's in the work plan. So maybe Cronin could actually talk about that. Yeah, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, when we're reviewing uh, traffic impact studies for large developments, um, one of the steps uh, in there is to review um, pedestrian, bicycle, um, considerations, uh, I think a transit as well, proximity to bus stops. Um, it doesn't necessarily require a development to connect a bike, say, this is say a bike path further beyond the development to an existing um, path, um, but it is taken into consideration um, when we're doing um, traffic impact studies for development. So um, it's something that we look at when we're reviewing uh, site plans, what to make sure that you know, if there's a adjacent bus stop that we're making a, a pedestrian connection from the site to the stop, um, if that has any um, impact on reducing the number of trips to the site, um, that the that the uh, project um, it may reduce the number of trips, with which also may reduce um, some of the uh, infrastructure improvements that may be needed to accommodate uh, vehicles. Um, so it is, it's something that uh, we look at, but there's, as far as impl implementing some of the um, connections, it's not a requirement uh, with a development, but um, it is something that we do review uh, when we get to the traffic studies. Commissioner Brian, MMTC. Um, well, thank you for describing kind of where we're at with that. I think it would be worth our consideration for how the study um, might, like how it informs the processes at either the Planning Commission or the Multimodal Transportation Commission, and if there might be some changes that are necessary in order to make um, that study have a little more weight. Um, getting to Commissioner Bowen's comment, it, what, what, what made me think about it was her perspective, if I, I mean, please speak, Commissioner Bowen, if I'm getting this wrong, but the perspective was less about, um, you know, does it minimize the park, the need for accommodating vehicles? It was more around, is this development truly multimodal and its ability to connect people from there to another destination? And that intrigues me because I think we don't often think about how destinations interact. You know, if I'm in one place, clearly I have to get transported to another place. So I'm wondering, you know, what ways do we, it, it kind of makes me think of some uh, comments that Mr. Allman has shared over the years about origin and destination studies and how how is it, where are people going to be coming from to go to this other, this new destination that might be being proposed? And what's the distance to get to a, a critical destination in our community from the new development? And I think related to that, 
as we build as we build the community out into into new um, land or land that's not been previously developed. Personally, I think we need to be very careful to, st to study the impact it has on our sustainability of our transit system. And if we're building out faster than transit can be built to accommodate that new growth, I think we're making a mistake. Because essentially what we're saying is we'll build new development for people that can drive. And I think that's a mistake. We, we got to be very cautious when we do that, that transit you know, is going to be close behind. I mean, not like, oh, maybe another 10 years, but literally there's a plan in place to get transit extended to that, to that location. Thank you. Lou Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commission. Uh, Commissioner Shanklin. Uh, Greg Shanklin, Planning Commissioner. Um, I, I'd just like to follow on uh, to what Commissioner Bryan just said. Um, T2040 has some good performance measures, uh, particularly uh, relating to uh, the consequences of urban sprawl, um, notably the density and single occupancy vehicle performance measures. And yet there really isn't anything that says um, in the way of a performance specification or a standard, we shall try to achieve X in either of those performance measures. And um, it, with respect to density in particular, I wonder if planning staff has modeled for a more dense uh, you know, urban core um, and what the effects on transportation there might be as a result of that. Um, certainly, um, we are treading water at best and, and probably losing ground to development at the urban fringe. And so I, I think the first step would be in a, a, a study component that I would like to see added to these potential research areas that are on the agenda is how to establish performance measures and the means to try to achieve them. Um, you know, not just aspirational, we want this to trend downward or we want this to trend upward, but what are we going to do about it? Thank you. Commissioner Bowen, I can think of a couple of examples from back in the day where we had some missed opportunities, but we weren't thinking like we are now. Before Meadowbrook uh, Apartments, before they fully developed, they asked the city if they could put a shopping strip on the street. And I kept thinking, wouldn't that be great if all those kids would just walk down there to get whatever they need and walk back to their apartments? That didn't happen because it didn't fit whatever code we had at the time. The other one are the athletic fields at LHS. The original proposal was for a senior living facility with cottages or some such thing, but it was rejected because they couldn't meet the parking requirements. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't even drive anymore. I don't know why that needed to be a requirement. The, um, the other one is the, Robert, you mentioned the one on 23rd and Tennessee. This is such a walkable area with a very functional node. They could very easily drop their parking back to one garage instead of two for each unit. 
Um, Planning Commissioner uh, Sharon Ashworth. Uh, yes, piggybacking on Commissioner Bowen's comments about examples. Um, I wonder if those would um, provide some a good study tool, um, not only these missed opportunities, um, but another example, for instance, I imagine with the downtown master plan, there has been some planning from the uh, from the planning staff and transportation planning staff around transportation with a denser area in conjunction with that downtown master plan that's being worked on. Uh, so that could provide um, study session. I'm also wondering about certain things. I remember uh, when the intersection, that whole, I forget what it's called now, 6th and Wakarusa, that whole new development in the northeast corner of 6th and Wakarusa, that was advertised as going to be a very neighborhood, walkable, friendly area. And look what it is now. I mean, what happened between that plan and what exists there now, which is very car-centric? Um, what happened to when they were developing the central district um, for KU here down on the western end of 19th Street, that was supposed to be a wide, bikeable, uh, walkable path next to retail. And it's just a bunch of blank walls for dorms. I mean, what happened between the initial idea and what we read about in the papers and what was going to happen and then what we see now? I think those might be helpful in terms of realizing where things took a wrong turn or a right turn. Um, in terms of that intersection of land use planning and transportation. Rob Sands, Planning Commissioner. Uh, Commissioner Ashworth, uh, I'm glad you didn't say the name of the development because if you say it three times, Patrick Kelly will come into the meeting and rail on it. At it. No, just kidding. No, he's not like Beetlejuice at all. Um, no, that, yeah, that that development Bauer Farm, uh, and and I think what the developer would would say is that what happened was uh, it was a confluence of a couple things, and and Nick Com Commissioner Kuzmiak might be able to uh, add some detail to this, but it's a great example. Uh, it was both the economic downturn in two thousand eight that affected that, and then kind of the 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 waning influence of the new urbanism movement. Um, and Nick can probably go into greater detail than I can about that. But, but those were, at the time, the reasons that it went from being a dense, more walkable, um, really a great concept to what it is now. And here's what I will say. What it is now is a lot of shops surrounded by very little parking. And, and there is, so, so, <laughs> You, you, that's a you bring up a great example. Bauer Farm is a great example of a confluence between on-street parking and off-street parking. Between the and and in, within that development, there's both good examples of how we how we should how the city should uh, guide uh, through code and through and through committee hearings the developers and and how it shouldn't. And, and my example is on either side of that street, and I don't recall what street it is, on the south side of it, that kind of bisects um, Bauer Farm, on the south side of it with the orange leaf and where Biggs Barbecues used to be and the tire store and the restaurants and, and those kinds of things that, that face into 6th Street, you've got their, their enclaved shops and their, their very small parking lots. And how do I know they're small? Because... When I take the boys to go get orange leaf, it, it's a 
it's it's a chance you might not actually get to park in the off-street parking. So then you have to park in the on-street parking. On the north side of that road, where the Sprouts is, where the Petco is, are these, I mean, very, very large parking lots that I have never seen full ever. And maybe, maybe they're warranted, maybe they're not. Maybe the developer wanted that parking. Maybe the city code required it. I don't know. But Commissioner Athworth, Ashworth, Bauer Farm is a great example that we could use as a vignette that says, how do we do on-street, off-street density and make it usable and not waste any precious land? Commissioner Bryan, MMTC. I want to throw out just another way we might frame this off-street, on-street parking balance. Essentially, we're talking about public and private parking. And the, the need for private parking is, is there because we haven't provided enough public parking. The public right-of-way isn't being used to park cars. It's being used to move cars. And because we make it a requirement of private developers to provide storage for vehicles, then they need to have public right-of-way to allow cars to get to those locations right in front of their shops, which really interferes with it being a very pedestrian friendly environment. Now, if we thought about it as public parking, we would probably never come to the conclusion that public parking should be spread out in front of every single shop. We'd probably consolidate it into a public parking garage or leave it on the street or do something else that feels more efficient from a public's perspective. And then you would end up with private land being used for maximizing the revenue that can be generated through that private land and for the pedestrian spaces that might further encourage the use of that private land. So I think as we go down this path of talking about parking, we maybe should be thoughtful about, you know, the words we're using and maybe we frame it as about public and private parking and the balance of that. And maybe it's too confusing to talk about on and off street parking. But however we do it, we need to always be careful that when we talk about parking, that we recognize it's it's not a um, it's it's a we have to look at it from its totality. And that gets us into if we move it into the public domain, there's greater tools that we can bring to bear to manage the demand for parking. We can also probably use that space differently if needed over time. It's harder for, I think, that private property to suddenly get redeveloped into some better use. But with public land or public right-of-way, you know, we could, it, it becomes part of the public domain and how we use it. Maybe it needs to be used for more green space when there's fewer and fewer cars being used. Who knows? That's kind of pretty, pretty far out there. But I think how we frame the discussion might impact how the community kind of understands what we're wrestling with, and they're not going to probably spend as much time as we might on studying, you know, the best practices out in the country or in the world around how we store vehicles when they're not in use. Thank you. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair of Planning Commission. 
Um, do we have any other comments from anyone um, on either commission? I guess as it pertains to uh, this discussion of the, um, what we're going to be, I guess the, the scope of the uh, areas to consider as part of the transportation and land use best practices study. Um, if I could, um, David Carter, Planning Commissioner, I'd just like to return to the memo that was part of our packet um, and ask um, uh, Jessica or anyone else sort of responsible you know, from, from the MPO Policy Board uh, about the intention of the memo, um, what you'd like to be able to accomplish out of it and from this discussion, to what degree this discussion is um, fueling uh, the next steps. Uh, I mean, I think, I think what's brought up in the memo is, is fantastic. I mean, I think just this discussion alone illustrates how many um, uh, intersections of, of planning and land use there are to explore, how difficult it is to prioritize one over the other. And so I'm just curious, um, in the memo, you mentioned guiding the work over the, over the third and fourth quarters of 2021. And I wonder, given just what we've done in the past hour and a half, um, how you would intend to prioritize the items that come up, how you would intend to um, you know, research and study them and reach some sort of policy recommendation. And then also whether, you know, what kind of timeline you're looking at in terms of the existence and functioning of the subcommittee. Yeah, Jessica Morton, your transportation planning manager. So I think the first thing was just get everything on the list that we think we're talking about. And the MPO kind of typically when we do planning processes, we have the MPO policy board, that's our governing body, appoint a steering committee. So we would work with other staff at the city to identify a list of stakeholders that should be included in that process. Um, and that would be like, you know, just like Plan 2040 had a steering committee, we do that for many of our planning processes. And so we would envision that committee helping us shape the work. Um, I think it's probably going, going to be um, lots of conversations like this to help us understand and decide how we're going to do research, how we're going to present it. I kind of have real high level ideas about maybe what it could look like, but I think we're willing to also recognize that this work is not done in a vacuum, that it is done with sensitivities to what's happening politically, sensitivities to where what our plans are calling for and where there's public interest and momentum in moving forward. And so I think hopefully that steering committee can help guide us in some of that work. Um, and ultimately, it's obvious it's going to be um, back to the, you know, once we finish a process or have a point where we can do stuff, maybe we need to do other engagement around it, um, around specific issues. Um, so we've kind of identified it. We have a work program because we're grant funded. We have to say what work we're doing in a specific year. Hmm. Um, and so we've identified it to begin kind of in that third or fourth quarter. It could take longer. We recognize that many of the tasks, if we identify and prioritize some of the work, that this could be work that needs to be done over the coming years. Um, it could be needing to prioritize with other city staff. So it's not to say that third and fourth quarter is going to be the only time we talk about it and have recommendations and we're just going to be done. I think it's the start to the process to recognize what type of things are we specifically talking about in terms of actions or required changes to documents, policies, process. 
um, to really implement our community's vision and expectation out of Plan 2040 and therefore out of T2040. Um, we mentioned, uh, someone mentioned earlier, uh, I think Commissioner Shanklin, and I wanted to say, you know, we have, we do a travel demand model. We look at that as part of our um, long range uh, transportation plan development, which we will be starting again next year. We're federally required to do those every five years. And so we have historically done different scenarios based on projects and a level of service for, for transportation projects when we look at uh, vehicle capacity on the roadway. Um, we'll have some options as we explore what the next plan development looks like to maybe add mode choice um, to the model. So looking at what does transportation demand look like if it's spread across modes instead of just automobile, which is how our current model reacts. We also have opportunities to discuss what different density and population scenario um, scenarios have on transportation projects and um, products. And I think Plan 2040 really lays out a way for us to do that um, because it envisions something a little bit different um, and more intense than Horizon 2020 did. That makes a good case for that something to for us be, to consider. So I think it's, but my answer is kind of vague. So if I didn't answer something really specific and you're still looking for an answer, you can ask it again. But I think the reality of it is, is we don't really know. And we're open to seeing kind of what that process looks like and how that hopefully that committee can guide our work in coming up with something that's really realistic and a useful work list for moving forward. And if I may just kind of piggyback on Jessica's comment, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director, one of the big analytical tools that's in Plan 2040 is a population model that runs behind the scenes that we use with uh, MSO's water, wastewater utility studies. We use it with part of Transportation 2040. So we have a population model that works, kind of, that helps us understand what's going on, how are the tiers doing, kind of those items and aspects. So there's a lot of modeling that goes into that. It's, um, it takes a lot of computers and a lot of math sometimes to get to it, but we do put some, try to put some good best guesses and some good numbers to it to understand what's really going on in the community. Brings up a quick question for me, Sharon Ashworth, Planning Commissioner. When I look at your list and I see connectivity policies for bicycle and pedestrian networks, um, I can understand how all this um, can be mapped using the population studies, lots sophisticated models um, for destination and paths and knowing where the gaps are. Can you give me an example of what a, a connectivity policy would be? What what sorts of examples have you seen that you might study or have this um, study? So I think in this, what the kind of things that fit under this that we were trying to kind of put under a broad category, but I don't think it's limited to this. Um, and this is Jessica Martin, your transportation planning manager, sorry, um, would be like in sub subdivision connectivity, thinking about like curvilinear style development and what sort of requirements we have for block length or making bike ped connections as we think about safe routes to school or other access within a community back to commercial nodes. Um, thinking about how long trip distance can be for bike ped in some of those instances. I think that's one example. I think another example would be thinking about, you know, our current code requires a connection um, from the right of way to a store entry and commercial development. Um, but there are some form-based connectivity policies that might make those situations more walkable, thinking about how long the distance of that connection can be. If it's 
the farthest, you know, if you have, if they make the connection all the way on one side, but your arterial street is here, we don't, we can't really dictate off of what street that connection comes off of, um, or how far that connection is across the site or through a parking lot. And so I think there's some other things we would want to explore there in terms of best practices to really think about how do we make walkability attractive as a mode, as opposed, you know, like to get across a huge privately owned parking lot. Um, so I think those are some of the types of things I was thinking about. If you were thinking about something else, I'd be happy to listen and, and entertain any ideas related to connectivity policy. No, that's that's what I was looking for. So what Sharon Ashworth Planning Commission is, is sort of what uh, the level of policy that would be as opposed to sort of the day-to-day, -day, okay, here are the maps, here are the gaps, um, here are, here's the math um, behind this. What would the, these policies look like that we don't have right now? So thank you. Yep. This is Commissioner Collette, um, uh, Chair of MMTC. And I think that kind of goes back a little bit to, I think it was Commissioner Bryan's comment early on in terms of this list and uh, that they appear to be fairly, appear to be transportation centric and perhaps wording them in such a way that it's more explicit in terms of bringing in the land use, land use perspective that, that goes into it because underlying it, it, there are lots of land use policies and, and uh, that, that have to be taken into consideration. So just wording in such a way that it's more, more explicit in terms of those two perspectives. And that's really what we're trying to, trying to get at. Karen Willie, Planning Commissioner. Um, I have a question just in general for the staff. Um, last time we met the two uh, commissions here, we were talking about um, how to move forward with sector plans, that we have some really outdated sector plans, and now we have an entirely different uh, lineup of work uh, on the agenda. Um, I don't want to lose track of the work that we need for those sector plans. I feel like that is a real, um, is really hampering the work that we do on the Planning Commission to not have those functioning in a way that we can use them. I think there's a huge overlap between what's needed for land use and what's needed for transportation in that discussion. And certainly it dovetails with um, all the items on, on Jessica's list also. But uh, is, that, is that a starting point we could come back to and say, if we put our heads together around sector plans, it will help inform the rest of the work that needs to happen on transportation? Thank you, Pepper Planning Manager. I'll let Jeff uh, uh, chime in also. But um, we are planning on bringing a, the updated work plan um, to you very soon um, that will have some um, uh, kind of layout, uh, but making those updates to the various sector and area plans. Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services Director. And I think the sector plans are a great spot to kind of, you know, have those kind of two kind of verge together and come into one. I think that's a great starting point for those. And the key to remember with the, the language in Plan 2040 is that it doesn't actually break apart sector plans and neighborhood plans like it used to. It lumps them all into one as specific land use plans because many of our sector plans actually go both in and out of the city limits. They show up in uh, established communities. They might show up on the edges. So it, they have a large range to it, but really, you really can't separate land use and transportation. And I think that's one of those overarching themes you see in Plan 2040 is that it binds those two together because 
how you lay out one really dictates how the other one kind of comes in form. So I think you see a lot of that in chapter three in growth and development. I think you see a lot of it in the policies that you have in uh, chapter four for neighborhood, uh, Lawrence neighborhoods. So there's a lot of different things I think they kind of bind to. But I think sector plans are a great meeting point for these two to kind of really come in and really, I think, genuinely tie up the discussion that we've been having this evening. Yes, Commissioner Collette, MMTC Chair. And so what would that process look like then? You know, I, I know that that was talked about at the end of the last meeting in September, um, and I was curious about that and just, you know, how that would how that would play out uh, with the MMTC and the Planning Commission. Do you have any ideas on that? Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services Director. Um, we're really kind of going back to scratch on those because they were done about, you know, between 2010 up to about 2014, 2015. So we really wanted to change that format and the way that they came to it. But we, you know, just we haven't really sat down and kind of locked it all in, but we would envision it to be a, a very broad approach to it because it's going to have to go before the City Commission, the Planning Commission, and the Board of County Commissioners to be adopted since sector plans have to be uh, since they're part of tw Plan 2040, they have to be incorporated by all three. So they have a big range of those items, but uh, we don't quite have the details for what that will look like yet lined out, but we're really wanting to get very broad input, very broad discussion from a lot of different entities. So we'd be happy to share that with everybody as soon as we kind of get that kind of locked in and, and sorted out, but don't have a, a lot of details I can provide this evening, unfortunately. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair of the Planning Commission. Um, any other comments about this particular topic? Commissioner Struckoff? Um, Eric Struckoff, Planning Commissioner. Um, I, th I think it's very important that we use um, our planning documents uh, most, trans most transportation and land use to kind of guide our discussions about about things like um, parking and, and private versus public. I think uh, Commissioner Bryan's comments about looking at it as public versus private are, are pretty insightful. It, it is one of the clear lines that we have uh, between on and off street parking. Um, and it might be useful to think about it in those terms. I think, uh, while we are developing policy and and kind of writing code, which is what will be in the area and sector plans, um, we we probably have to have a discussion starting from the top down. And um, I think that um, Jeff Craig's comments just now about stakeholders and the meetings and things like that might be a good starting point as well. And it would be good to know whether for instance, our largest institutions in our city, our hospital, our universities, um, can they come on board with um, a sh paradigm shift about transportation? Um, places with lots of shift workers um, who arrive at the same time, things like that. Um, so I think the stakeholder idea is one that we probably need to pick up from the very beginning and get um, KU and LMH 
and Baker and Honeywell and, and our top 10 employers, Hallmark, um, Amar, to, to the table to think about what benefit could those institutions and employers gain from improved efficiency in our transportation systems? How can the city, how can these institutions work together to reach a goal, a goal of reducing trips onto those campuses or workplaces? Um, to do they need better bus service to their to their location? Do they have a a plan to carpool or something like that? Um, and you know the 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 confluence of land use and transportation planning in that case is is it, it shifts over to transportation um, and, um, and and a discussion of efficiency. But I think it's going to be important to get those those entities together to um, a agree that this is probably a worthwhile thing b identify what challenges our current use and our current paradigm present to the city um, from budgetary maintenance standpoint to those institutions from their own maintenance standpoints um, could they get by with fewer parking lots of uh, uh, your parking spaces, that sort of thing. But I think if we if we want to write something into the code or have a policy of some kind, it might. You know, we're going to have to do it concurrently with uh, have a discussion concurrently with with some of the biggest stakeholders in our community. And I'm, um, my sense is that it's not always been possible to have that discussion. Um, with that we've been kind of insulated from each other as a city and, and as institutions in having that discussion and acknowledging that there are challenges that each of these entities face uh, as a result of each other's actions. Um, and so I think that it's going to be important to kind of um, get a vision from these largest institutions and the city together um, and, and kind of let that kind of that might make it easier to to develop policy and uh, and and around around transportation planning uh, and, and land use. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commission. Thank you, Commissioner Starkoff. Um, I don't want to cut this part of the discussion short, but we do uh, we have on our agenda also a discussion um, or a, as an item sidewalk variances and I think I've heard a couple mentions of it but I'd, I'd hate to um, I'd have to cut that short um, and give it short shrift so uh, I, I guess one question I have is is that particular topic or and I'm drawing a total blank here so maybe Becky it'd be best if you spoke to it but is that topic is there a particular um, end goal to that discussion or uh, a, a motivation for having us discuss it tonight from planning's uh, the staff's perspective becky pepper planning manager um i'll also ask uh, david carnan to um, answer too if he if he's uh, if there's more information he wants to provide but i think that planning staff is um there have been more uh, requests for sidewalk variances that have been brought to the planning commission so i think one of the um the ideas behind it was to get to just start to have this uh, a discussion and get feedback from 
uh, the planning commissioners uh, about these types of requests. Okay, thanks, Becky. Uh, David, did you have anything to add to that? No, um, I, I do not. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I guess as a planning commission, we have seen um, a number of these sorts of variances requested, um, maybe a, a slight uptick in those. And um, so, I, you know, does anyone have any thoughts that they'd like to offer on that topic at this point? Commissioner Ashworth? Sharon Ashworth, Planning Commissioner, I just have to say that I've, I've felt just inconsistent myself um, in voting on these. I don't I don't feel like there's an overall um, uh, I guess an overall goal that we have in looking at these. They've been very piecemeal uh, piecemeal and different sectors of town and I've felt myself inconsistent with um, how I'm viewing these and I and I do wish we had more of an overall um, I don't know if goal is the right word. It's the only thing coming to, to mind now, but how we treat these sort of a little bit more consistency in how we treat variances. You know, when do we give them? When do we not give them? How big a picture are we looking at when we look at these variances? I think we probably need a little bit. I'll just use the word consistency, more consistency. This is Commissioner Collette. Can you... Um give some examples of some of the variance requests that you that you've seen recently that have come before the commission the planning commission thank you pepper planning manager um recently we've been on platting applications minor subdivisions or preliminary plats um they've been in both residential and non-residential areas uh i think in most cases they're in areas where there is not sidewalk existing. Um, there's not a connectivity gap that they are, um, would be filling with construction at sidewalk at that time. Um, and there is, a, um, as part of it, there is an agreement not to protest that is um, executed and, and basically that would uh, then says that when the sidewalk is um, a more appropriate time to be constructed, that it will be constructed then and at the um, the cost of the property owner. I'd also note that the, our subdivision regulations require the construction of sidewalk with platting. Um, and because of that process, that's why we're the, to not construct the sidewalk requires that, that variance. So oftentimes it is in those instances where they're it's not completing a gap where there's a block that might not have sidewalk on it and this would be the first sidewalk constructed on, on that side of the street on that block. Um, those are the types of variances I think that are most, most recently have been brought to the, the commission. Yeah, um, David Carter, uh, Planning Commissioner. 
I think the overall intention of the uh, subdivision regulations make a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, you know, we're a community that we, we want we want Lawrence to be a walkable community and we want um, new developments to have sidewalks on both sides built into uh, into the development. And I think in a way um, that's a reaction to the regulations that we've had in decades past. I mean, I grew up in Lawrence and know lots and lots of neighborhoods that you know didn't have any sidewalks or a sidewalk on just one side of the street. And brought, you know, as a kid, that was um, it was it was a real nuisance. And um, I think where these variances have tended to make sense is um, you know, in, in subdivisions that are incompletely developed, we'll have whole stretches of blocks that I mean, when we travel along any path, we're traveling from, from an origin to a destination. And in neighborhoods that, that are incompletely developed, there is neither origin nor destination. And so the sidewalk in a particular stretch doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if it's constructed at a particular time period. And then by the time the construction takes place, the sidewalk may be dilapidated or the sidewalk may have to be torn up in order to construct driveways and things like that. And so there's a lot of, there's construction, demolition, reconstruction. And the, um, you know, in, in those res respects, the, um, I think the, uh, the variances have made sense. Um, I recall one particular instance where a sidewalk uh, variance was requested because um, it was near a multi-use path and there was already a lot of pedestrian traffic on the other side of, of the street. And that particular case, um, I didn't think it did make a lot of sense because we expected there to be a, a high volume of pedestrians. And, and you know, um, in, in that case, um, uh, there was both origin and destination. So um, I, I don't know, uh, Commissioner Collette, if that kind of, without naming specifics, if that kind of gives you a little bit more background of what we've dealt with. Yes. Oops, sorry, missed you. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you bet. Aaron Payton, MMTC and Planning Commission. Um, Thinking about some of these, I remember the first, I believe the first variance I saw um, was in a, actually I think it was the hospital. Um, and and I, I remember I really struggled with this because we just wrapped up uh, the pedestrian bicycle issues task force and it felt like some of these variances that come to us, and I don't think at that time it was an option, there was no, um, no uh, agreement to not contest future development of the um, sidewalk at the landowners, um, by the landowner. Uh, so I really appreciate that agreement because I feel like, although we can't necessarily know how that plays out in the long run, it's nice to know that, that when that sidewalk might actually, uh, <laughs> that sidewalk might actually get um, some traffic that that there is some way to make sure that the, the sidewalk gets built, and so that made a big difference to me on on uh, whether I felt like it was good to grant a variance in that particular situation. But I still feel like you know that's the kind of thing it might be. You know, some additional guidance is nice. It, it is hard to not grant a variance when you you say, okay, is is one or two or one or two people going to use this sidewalk? you know, in a year, why, 
put a sidewalk in there. Whereas if you see someplace that's more developed uh, or closer to development or closer to commercial where people might actually use it, I think it's a little easier to make that decision. So it still would be maybe nice to see a little more information on, on you know, the future of that sidewalk or uh, guidance on best ones to do that. Uh, the hospital situation, I felt like, you know, somebody might be using that uh, sidewalk, not not as a destination to be more recreational. So that was kind of how I saw that. Commissioner, <clears throat> Commissioner Bryan, MMTC. One thought I had in response to uh, some of the comments that is when we think about providing a variance for a sidewalk, we might we might remember that what we're doing is we're providing a variance for people that are choosing some other way to move. So what I'm hearing is we aren't considering a variance to put a roadway there, like a someone can drive through this area, but they can't walk, you know, perhaps they can bike on the road. And I just wonder, like, what's the limit to that variance? perspective. So I, I've looked at areas of town that have that kind of slow development. And I get the, I get the point that you're going to, if you put, put a sidewalk in and it has to be the, the lot is developed later, there might be damage to the sidewalk and it feels like a poor use of um, limited resources. But when a place goes undeveloped for a period of time, um, it just seems like that's that sidewalk's never going to be completed. And I'm thinking about the sidewalk. Um, there's a sidewalk where it just kind of stops going toward Queens Road. I think it's, uh, I forgot the road, but it's, oh. Uh, well, what I know is you just end up hitting a, you know, suddenly dirt. And otherwise, it's a pretty good continuous path. If you get yourself across Queens Road, then you're back to, um, a nice sidewalk. And there's a lot of people that do, you know, make their way across that area, yet they don't do it using the sidewalk. So I don't know, I just, this is where I think it'd be useful when that decision's being made for some consultation with MMTC. We don't have any authority to make a decision about it, but we could certainly provide a recommendation I think that would be useful as you are framing a decision being made by the planning commission or by the city commission. So I, I feel like that's a, that's not too much to ask in terms of the process. You know, it's one more, you know, perhaps month of delay, I suppose. Um, but it, there's other things that we might bring to that consideration, like how does it fit within the broader uh, bike or pedestrian planning efforts that are being done? You know, is it on a path that could feature, have a future use as a safe routes to school, you know, just things like that, that I think is probably hard to say precisely, you know, what should be done, but I think having a chance to understand the decision before it's being made by the planning commission or the city commission could be useful for, for us. And then having the chance to provide some perspective could be useful for you. Thank you. Planning Commissioner Sharon Ashworth, um, just a quick question for staff. Um, these agreements uh, that are uh, 
state that when a, at such a time when the sidewalk is desirable, that they shall not protest the building of a sidewalk. Has any of the, have any of those agreements ever come to fruition? Has that ever ever been implemented to date? Uh, the city engineer, not that I'm aware of uh, in my time. Um, mo most often those are in small areas like say a, um, a lot split on a residential street or you don't have sidewalk on either side of the street and it's just a, a lot or two. Um, <clears throat> that at some, at some point in the future if additional development would occur um, to put a sidewalk say on the rest of the block that they would not protest um you know constructing at that time uh, but that's um so it's more of timing uh and that um and in any of those instances that that's occurred i don't uh recall um exercising that commissioner brian mmtc um david would you maybe help us understand like the right to protest the building of a sidewalk in the public right-of-way what what's the basis for that um well the basis is on um as far as a benefit district goes i think it's uh based off of uh kansas statutes on the requirements for establishing a benefit district um which i believe is uh at least 50 percent or more need to agree to participate in a benefit district for it to be um i guess legal um, so agreeing not to protest is, is basically um, giving up your, um, your uh, right to say no or be counted against um, that requirement. Thank you. So the, the protest is against the benefit district, not against the uh, building of a sidewalk in the public right-of-way, correct? Correct. All right, so if it was funded through a different mechanism, there would be no right to protest the sidewalk, correct? Correct. All right. Is it? Is there anything that compels the private property owner to build a sidewalk? Like to fund that themselves privately? I know the repairs are required now, but is there, if the city were to say a, a sidewalk needs to be put in this public right-of-way and it's adjacent to your property, does that compel the property owner to pay for the installation of the sidewalk? Um, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, it's really up up to the property owner, but most often, no, it does it does not compel them to put it in. It's, it's an additional cost, and so a lot a lot of times they perceive that as you know what's the need if there's not a sidewalk you know adjacent to my property, why am I putting in a sidewalk? Um, you know, that's really, there's a gap on either side. So in those sorts of instances, it's additional cost and, and just the perception of, uh, of need. A public need or private need? Like they don't believe that the public would use a sidewalk? Uh, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, I, I would say, uh, yeah, the, the public need. Okay. But, but it's, it, I think it just de depends on, um, you know, at, on who's uh, developing the property. And so that, that I think um, when we've got the variance, um, you know, the 
the uh, requests for variances, that has been the common theme behind not wanting to put it in. It's just um, it's not connecting to anything, and it's an additional cost. So, Commissioner Bryan, again, so is it possible to at least establish an escrow that would provide the funding for the future development of the sidewalk if a developer gets a variance? Because I'm just concerned, like, this really hinges on the benefit district, and perhaps the question really is, if a private developer is going to take land and develop it, and they're not willing to pay for all the public improvements to that land for it to be developed, for them to make a profit on it. Could they at least um, put the money into an escrow that if it's not developed over a certain period of time, then eventually it, you know, the funding's there for it. So it's not a matter of private property owners that in the future purchase those properties having to pay for the benefit. Uh, Dave Cronin's the engineer. Yeah, that's, that's possible. Um, in, in new subdivisions where, where we are going to look at um, phasing sidewalks in as the lots develop and, and have an established time period um, before they're all required, um, we're looking at uh, being flexible um, on how we do that. I think on a lot of these infill uh, projects where we do a minor subdivision, say in a residential area, um, if you were to set aside money in an escrow, um, you know, when we've done these and we haven't ever gone back and built a sidewalk because there hasn't been, you know, more development that occurred to keep connecting that network, then, you know, there's a time, you know, there would be a time period that I don't know what that time period requirement would be. Um, but I think if you're looking 10 years or, you know, a long, a long term, it would be hard for the city to hold money in an escrow for a long period of time um, in those sorts of situations, if that makes sense. I'm just thinking in, you know, if you're on a street um, uh, that doesn't have sidewalk on either side of the street and you're splitting your lot to build another house, um, it's just, you know, say a couple lots on a large block, um, you know, if, if you know, the agreement not to protest is there for, you know, if there's more development on that street or lot splits, at some point, something would trigger completing that whole block. You know, what would that trigger be versus just two lots? Is it half of the lots? Um, that, that could be um, something that uh, is discussed, but, um, you know, the, the, time, the timing, too, and the time frame would, is challenging because on some of those, there could be no other uh, minor subdivisions for a long time, many, many years. And so that's the, the challenge, I think, uh, with, uh, with that. And that's where variances are most often requested, I think, right? Thank you. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when, when, we, when we're looking at, um, you know, gap sidewalks on collector streets, arterial streets, safe routes to school. Um, it's, you know, we very rarely, or I, I don't recall many ever where we, you know, supported a variance uh, for not doing a sidewalk on those type of streets because it's in our uh, plan to get sidewalks on both sides of, of, those, of those streets. I think it's the infill residential developments and there are probably a few commercial where, um, 
Um, it's, it's timing and connectivity. So there's some subjectivity to you know, making a decision on a variance based off looking at the context of the, the overall network and what it's gonna connect to and what's the perceived benefit. Um, and so those are, I think, some situations that, you know, they could be, that, that raise some questions, I, I would say. Well, thank you. It feels like we're kind of in a rabbit hole, so I don't want to keep going down this path, but I, I think going back to kind of the discussion about best practices and land use and transportation planning, it, I'd be interested in learning about, you know, how we might avoid this, this problem where years go on and, and uh, part of our public infrastructure is not developed and it, it feels as if the private developers kind of gotten their profit, they've moved on and they've kind of passed the buck and really then it becomes a burden on the, on the private owners, you know, the property there that their, their only way of solving that problem is through some kind of benefit district. And I, I don't know, just feels like there might be a need to explore either a different approach to doing the private development work that allows for that land to be developed and profited on, or maybe a different financing mechanism that doesn't involve imposing a benefit district on a community or in a neighborhood maybe that feels like, you know, they already bought their land, they already bought their property. And I think that's the issue with Queens Road is there wasn't um, really enough foresight to make sure that when the property was developed that the public infrastructure was built um, and there was no escrow put aside to make sure that was paid for later. I'm sure that private developer made enough money to, or could have made enough money to take care of that public infrastructure develop or investment that needed to be made. Thank you. I think Carol had a comment, but you're muted, Carol. Please do the opposite. Um, the north side of 23rd Street at one time was full of gaps. And every time one property owner would want to rebuild their property, they would say, there's no connectivity, so may I please not put in a sidewalk? So it took a very long time just to put a sidewalk along 23rd Street. I think you need to be very wary of the variances. Luke Sinclair, uh, Vice Chair Planning Commission. I appreciate that comment, Commissioner Bowen. I, I, I would only add that I think we do have, it's a pretty high burden, I think, to, to um, get a variance. Um, and it's one that I think as a commission, we take pretty seriously, um, at least in my experience. Um, Commissioner Struckoff, I saw your hand up. Uh, Eric Struckoff, Planning Commissioner. Um, I, I agree with, uh, with Commissioner Bowen's comment that it is something we do need to keep an eye on. Uh, uh, Vice Chair Sinclair is correct. We do take it pretty seriously, and it is a it is a, a bar that um, that's high enough that if somebody does meet it, um, um, they they usually have to present a pretty good case to do that. And and they have. I also add that in January we saw an application, or we, we were asked to consider um, 
ways of uh, reducing the upfront costs of some housing. And among those proposals was one to simply change the timing of the sidewalk installation requirements um, to adjust to address just the uh, issue that, that a couple of commissioners brought up, and that is the um, the destruction of sidewalks that have been put in before construction is complete. So we we have taken some steps to kind of address that part of the of, of the problem. And that and that was a problem that did need to be to be addressed. Um, but I, I share Commissioner Bowen's um, concern um, that we just need to be vigilant and make sure that you know we keep our vision in sight um, for um, for thoroughfares that are complete uh, and complete for all users. Um, I really cringe when I hear the 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 lack of an adjacent facility used as a reason to perpetuate the lack of facilities. Um, and so that's just something to keep in mind when these variances come up. Sometimes they are worthwhile and they make sense, but they, they don't always. Um, and I think having taken um, at least a small step to address what was a real concern, a financial concern for developers was was a good one, but we do need to keep um, the, the goals and the visions of this community in mind uh, when we consider those. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commissioner. Thanks, Commissioner Strakoff. Other comments, questions? This is Commissioner Collette. I'd, I'd like to go back to Commissioner Ash, Ashworth's comment at the uh, outset of this conversation and feeling like there wasn't, or it, it wasn't consistent or that there wasn't enough guidance. And um, it sounds like some of you feel like there is, and you know, so do you feel the same way? And or can you give some examples? I guess, Commissioner Ashworth, of ways in which that that could be improved. Um, I mean, someone mentioned you know the possibility of it coming before the MMTC as well uh, to look at it. Would that be another check in the in the system that would would it would help with that? Or are there some limitations there? Um, Planning Commissioner Sharon Ashworth. Well, in terms of another step, as Commissioner Bryan has uh, recommended, I would certainly pitch that to staff because I don't know what that would do to the timing of these projects. Um, these variants, variances that come before the Planning Commission um, are, are pretty minor compared to a lot of the, the stuff we do. So I don't, I don't know what that would do to the timing of these sorts of things. And that would be a question to, for staff. Um, as far as some examples, um, you know, it, it has felt, um, and I have felt just personally a little bit inconsistent because these variances come through and it is, it's just this isolated chunk of sidewalk in the middle of nothing. You know, there's not, no development, um, hardly at all. It, it's in this, uh, if they're in town, they're not necessarily out in the rural areas and it's just this one chunk of sidewalk. And so, and, I, and that is how they are presented. But I think um, thinking about that comment that was made by Commissioner Bowen in terms of, well, what is the potential for that being continued to use as an excuse? I mean, is, is a good way to think about it.
Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair. Go ahead, Commissioner Ashcroft. Or Commissioner Struckoff, sorry. Um, this is uh, Eric Struckoff, Planning Commissioner. Um, I think it's natural to feel in inconsistent personally. I mean, I, I do feel sometimes that way too when uh, I approve a variance, like, like um, the most recent one, I think, um, which we did approve. Um, and I believe that's on Fox Chase. Um, when we're trying to keep a division and our our goal in mind, um, and then when we get a variance, we approve it. I mean, to me, that feels inconsistent also, but it's the reason we have the variance process um, so that we can address these on a case-by-case -case basis um, and make a judgment about each one instead of uh, summarily dismissing or, or, or approving um, a, a, a any departure from what we've stated to be our goal. So I feel the same way. Um, I feel this, I feel that way about some of the right-of-way um, variances that we grant because when I think about some of the some of the developments that we and the redevelopments that we've had to do in the city, and I think, well, you know, 20 years from now or 10 years and 20 variances from now, we might totally prevent the sensible development of a stretch of road um, because the variances pile up and eventually you might have had another 50 feet of right of way for a needed street redevelopment. But because over the years we've allowed um, variances from that right of way requirement, we're never going to get there to the street we need. Um, sometimes that's foreseeable, sometimes it's not. Um, but I still feel um, like, no, I want to preserve public right of way for eventual street improvements, but I take the recommendations of the engineering staff to heart and they say, we're not, we're not going to do anything there. We're not going to use that right of way for street redevelopment. So the, so the right of way variance is, is probably okay. But, you know, when I think about the widening of castle um, on the West side of campus between 15th and, uh, and 23rd, a few years ago, that was, <laughs> who knew that street was going to need to be so big back uh, in 1950 or 60, whenever it was laid out, um, or 23rd Street. You know, we had a study done um, back in the aughts about how that street could possibly look, but it would never look the way those consultants described it without big changes in the right-of-way in that street. Is it possible for us to have accomplished that? Probably not on the north side of the street. Um, what about on the south side? Um, I don't know. Um, possibly, but because because um, we've permitted development to continue to exist where it is, um, we, we won't ever have that right of way. So that, those are the kind of things that go through my mind when I think about um, granting a variance, whether it's sidewalk or right of way. Um, and I do personally also feel inconsistent sometimes, but, but um, I rely on the recommendations of the engineers and the, and the city staff who have, who have looked probably into this with at least as much uh, as much rigor as I have. So, so although I do feel personally inconsistent, I, I still think it's okay sometimes. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, um, Planning Commission. Uh, Becky, David, is this helpful for you um, as you think about this particular issue? Um, Dave Cronin, City Engineer. Um, yeah, it's helpful. I mean, I understand the, um, the some of the comments on some of the inconsistencies. I can see that. I think it's just uh, depending on on your perspective and 
I mean, we, we look at it very, um, we, we scrutinize a, a lot of the uh, requests for variances on these uh, pretty closely. And we point back to our plans and our, um, you know, like I said, um, when we're looking at developments on arterial collector streets, safe routes of schools, um, and where there's clearly um, a, a benefit for completing gaps that we that we uh, always recommend that those get put in with the development. So um, um, we'll, we'll continue to, I think, keep looking at our process and um, maybe look at um, some other criteria and timing for uh, when we do allow variances, you know, what is the trigger um, you know, to, to, to complete that uh, sidewalk or that sidewalk network and, and how does that tie into our planning efforts of getting sidewalks on one or both sides of, uh, of, a, of a street depending on its classification. And if I might also add, um, Becky Pepper, planning manager, um, I, I appreciate the, the comments um, provided tonight, um, um, especially hearing some concerns about being inconsistent. And I think that staff can take uh, these comments and, and hopefully provide um, more information, more analysis in our staff reports to help um, you with, with those recommendations and, and determinations and make, hopefully provide some, at least a feeling of more consistency. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair, Planning Commission. Thank you both. Um, before we get too far along, I do want to thank uh, everyone who's come and participated for your time and your thoughtful commentary. I think it sounds like staff has um, has information they can run with and that Jessica did too. I, I know as a, the Planning Commission, um, these discussions are helpful to us as we um, as we engage in our decision-making process. Um, and hopefully for those of you on the MTC, it's helpful for you guys as well. Um, we can certainly have more comments if you guys have them. I would also, from the planning commission's perspective, I'd enter entertain at any point a motion to recess to, to Wednesday if, if we're sort of to the end of our uh, discussion mode here. Commissioner Bryan. Uh, thank you. Commissioner Bryan, MMTC. Um, a couple things that come to mind before we recess I'd like to share, or really I think we can frame it as one thing. It was a comment that was made earlier by Commissioner uh, Shanklin. It was around this idea of setting clear goals. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm wondering, we, hadn't, we didn't really talk much about performance measures that might help us to illustrate the connection between land use and um, and transportation. And I, I don't, maybe this goes back into the best practices discussion, but just some things that I think could be captured if we were to, to develop a shared set of performance measures and goals uh, might be how we talk about equity in land use and transportation. Um, perhaps we can look at metrics like the percent of households that are within a half mile of a transit stop. Um, I'm just looking at a website from the Center for Neighborhood Technology, and it shows about 66% of households are within a half mile of transit. Um, 
unfortunately only about a 14% are within a half mile of high frequency transit. Not sure what that means, but I assume high frequency is better. And I think if we could get to sort of a common sense of what measures matter from a from both a transportation and land use perspective, that could be really useful for our community. Um, and I think it's essential that we think about equity in all that work. So maybe that's where we we kind of talk about what our goals are so that we build a community that works for everyone. And that might also allow us to talk about the affordability of the development pattern, not just to the private, you know, for the private costs, um, like the cost of an automobile, but it can also look at the public costs, you know, the fiscal uh, capacity of our community to maintain the development pattern um, would be interesting to look at because, you know, we all know that the more sprawl there is, the more cost there is to maintain that from a transportation and a land use kind of perspective. Maybe, well, those are kind of trade-offs. So it's kind of the balance of the two. And then there's the kind of the opposite effect of trying to constrain growth so much that you actually increase the cost of land. So I think it'd be a nice challenge for us to take on to think about what those metrics might be that help us as a community to talk about the intersection between land use and transportation. So I don't know, that might go into the best practices or it could be just another discussion altogether. But put a pin in that maybe. Thank you. Mr. Vice Chair, if I might, uh, Karen Willey, Planning Commissioner, uh, we set this work session in order to make more work for ourselves. There's no need for us to uh, cover everything tonight and try and solve it. So I would very much uh, make a motion that we recess our Planning Commission portion of this meeting for till Wednesday night, where we will also get to spend a much later night on Wednesday. Luke Sinclair, Vice Chair. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Willie. We have a motion to recess until Wednesday. Is there a second? I believe Commissioner Sands was the first to raise his hand uh, for a second. Um, Becky, I guess that would you be the one to read the roll on that? Becky Pepper, manager, I'd be happy to do so. Commissioner Ashworth? Yes. Commissioner Butler? Yes. Commissioner Carpenter? Yes. Commissioner Carter? Yes. Commissioner Payton? Commissioner Payton? Yes. Commissioner Sands? Yes. Commissioner Shanklin? Yeah. Commissioner Sinclair? Yes. Commissioner Struckoff? Yes. Commissioner Willie? Yes. Motion passes 10 to zero. Thank you much. I, with that, um, we are in recess and thank you to everyone who, who joined. Um, appreciate it and we'll planning commission see you on Wednesday. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks everybody. everybody.